if you don't think you're going to do much better in real estate, then just don't do real estate, right? Yeah. So it, you obviously, you have come to the recognition that the real estate deals are a better fit for you. That tax factor mm-hmm. is not a decisive. It is not a determining factor at all in pulling the trigger on using retirement accounts. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Five Talents Podcast. I'm your host, Abel Pacheco. I interview the top commercial real estate investors and industry experts so you can learn from their experiences. So if you're an investor, a high W-2 earner or real estate or tech sales professional that wants to invest in real estate without having to manage properties or leave your day job, then this podcast is for you. Or if you're already investing in real estate, but you're doing it part-time and you want to become a full-time multifamily or full-time commercial real estate investor, this podcast is for you too. You're going to learn a ton. You will learn from real-life multifamily investors and other professionals in the industry. They're going to share their blueprints for success. And I'm super excited that you're here. So I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, hello. This is Abel Pacheco, your host for the Five Talents Podcast. We have one of those guests, one of those experts, one of those individuals that you are just going to learn a lot from. I'm very excited to have him on our show because we haven't really dove into a lot of this expertise around, if you've heard the word, self-directed IRA, UBIT taxes, solo 401k, QRPs, all of this stuff. And you're like, I want to leverage something to invest in my multifamily commercial real estate syndications. Bernard Reese is going to be an amazing guest. So again, my name is Abel Pacheco. Welcome to the Five Talents Podcast. Bernard, thank you so much for joining. Abel, thank you so much for having me. I am pumped about this discussion and let's get rocking and rolling. Thank you very much, man. It's going to be an awesome show. So if you don't have a pen and a piece of paper, I would get one. If you're running or jogging or something, it's okay. When you get to the house, you can rewind. But uh, this is going to be an awesome one. So Bernard, I know that you you know, really take uh, an active approach to like empower investors. You build rock solid financial foundations and you're really at it to kind of break the cycle of dependence fostered by financial sales ops. So you know, I was referred to you by a really, you know, just one of those authority kind of figures in the social arena, Mr. Yona Weiss. And he said, you know, many multitude of, of great things about you, but, you know, I kind of have that, that mindset of, man, you're an expert in this space, just honest, very unbiased approach to how you advise clients. So giving really good background in the tax, the accounting, due diligence, and really provide like the consulting and advisory services as well. You've got a number of accreditations behind you. So I don't even want to pretend what all these letters mean, man. Well, I know CPA, but CPCU, ARM, ACI, insurance, and and securities license. Let, Let me turn it over to you. Why don't you give us a proper background? Tell us who you are and what you do, and we'll just jump into a great conversation. I'm excited, Bernard. Okay. So the first thing I say, all those titles are almost meaningless. Um, I'd be the first one to say that, that they really in and of themselves don't say all that much. But I'll give you the context. How did I get to where I am? What drives me? And what is it kind of different? So most people in the financial services space and a lot of different professions kind of come into the space 
you get your degree, the basic stuff you need just to break into the industry. You get placed in your cubicle. You do the thing that you do. You do it for a couple of years. You move up in the ranks. Maybe if you're somewhat uh, more entrepreneurial or you see, hey, you're not going to make partner in the CPA firm or the consulting firm, then you go out, you hang your own shingle, and you keep doing what you've been doing for the last couple of years. But that was not for me. I'm always trying to learn, read, explore in depth and in breadth. And that's what those designations are about. So I went to test myself and anything that I touched, I'm really going to master this. And one of the ways it's played out practically is that when I first got my CPA license and I came out of school, I got a job offer at the Holy Grail for accountants and consultants at PwC. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with PwC? Yeah, Price Waterhouse Cooper, PwC. That's right. All right, yeah. That's it. We know, we know those little guys. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like everybody's dream Yeah, is to be at PwC. If you have an accounting degree and you, right? And so I came out, I actually got my CPA license. I took the exams in three mm-hmm. months mm-hmm. and I was like a newly minted CPA and I initially accepted the offer. Okay. From PwC. And then two weeks before I was about to, I was supposed to start, <laughs> I realized, you know what? I'm not going to be able to hack this. They're going to stick me in a cubicle. So I realized they're going to stick me in a cubicle and they're going to say, here's what you do. And if you're going to have questions, you're going to want to suggest another way to do things or a different way to look at things. They're just going to say, okay, keep to yourself, man. You're new here. You just came in. You know, don't open your mouth for three years. You know, you can surface for air in three years and then you can start maybe asking questions and having suggestions. So mm-hmm. I said, no, thank you. These guys didn't know what hit them because this is like, this is the first time I think anybody is like a new graduate and is calling them up and saying, nah, PwC, no thanks. <laughs> so that's what it's really all about. So titles, designations, even CPA, if you're not going to be somebody that really learns the title itself, and the designation, the certification doesn't mean that much. It's more about what you are as a person. So that's what, to answer your question, letters and alphabet soup are important, but they have to come together with a lifelong commitment to learning. Yeah, I 100% agree. You know, I don't, everything that you just mentioned, regardless of what we're doing, industry, entrepreneurial, you know, your family you know, relationships, man, if you're not feeding into like yourself, investing in education, trying to figure out how to get better, you know, we stay stagnant. And then we don't know, you know, you just miss out on all this amazing, you know, resources, knowledge, education. And I had a, I had a mentor that says something along these lines. He, and this is Marcus Ogden. He goes, knowledge, we know is power, but applied knowledge will change your life. Right. And so I'm like, okay, cool. That That's the difference is if you continue learning, you get the accreditation. Yeah, but you got to continue on the path and then want it to do it for yourself, right? And not follow these rules. Well, that's awesome, man. That's a great start. So tell me more, man. Tell me how it got started for you and, and what you're doing now, and then we'll get on it. So one of the things I saw, I was actually worked while I was in school. Mm-hmm. And so I got a lot of awesome exposure uh, to a lot of great stuff. So I worked at a management consulting firm. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing due diligence, work, audit work. And then even actually on my own, I got to do some incredible high-level tax consulting to middle market businesses. These are businesses that are running you know, $250 million per year in annual revenue. 
but it all came from kind of, hey, they got to, see, to know me and they're like, okay, Bernard, you're a smart guy. They entrusted me with these tasks. Mm-hmm. And I got to see one of the things that I saw working with these closely held companies that are, that are large private enterprises is that the business and business owner were always being pitched these tax and financial products. Mm-hmm. And they did not have the wherewithal to analyze it. And even the accountants for these large companies, they really just weren't familiar with all these things. And every day there's some other financial salesperson coming in saying, do this, do that. A big one that they kept running into was captive insurance, which is why I ended up with CPCU, ARM, ACI. Those are all risk management and insurance designations. I was like, all right, if I'm going to assess this, you got to know the tax side and you have to know the insurance side as well, because it's at the nexus of those two. But more importantly, I saw that people are always getting pitched products mm-hmm. rather than giving a solution that empowers them. So the first thing that I did was I said, all right, we're going to set up retirement accounts for people that empower them to do what they want to do. We have to break that association between retirement accounts and financial sales industry. I like to call them sometimes naked retirement accounts because Retirement accounts are created by the tax code, very complex area of tax code. Once you look at qualified retirement plans and IRAs, a lot of complexity there, but the tax code says very little about the investing side and the asset classes. Somebody else decided to dress up these retirement accounts and layer on these layers of clothing. Imagine somebody dressed for like the Arctic weather. That's what we're getting. We're getting retirement accounts that are bundled up and wearing like 13 layers of, of clothing. And we got to create notes. We want a naked retirement account. We're just going to give you to the way Congress envisioned it and not bundled with any of these other layers. And you can invest in what you want. So that's the kind of a, what was my, I'd say anchor point for services that we, we deliver. And to yeah. what extent are you familiar with the self-directed space? So uh, this is going to be a great conversation. One, because ton of investors ask me <laughs> when they know they want to invest in real estate, they know they want to get in commercial multifamily. They're like, Hey, I'd like to invest with you. And when I start taking them down the path of what I did, when you asked me, what do I know? I invested first passively and I invested as a, with a self-directed IRA. So I kind of got lucky here that, you know, my active operator, the guy I was investing with, he was like, Hey, do you know, some people invest with their retirement accounts. And he just kind of happened to mention it. And I was like, they do. I didn't know I could do that. I want in. So anyways, when I found it, I took my old 401k from my company that I left. So I was there for a number of years, had some 401k. I left, I directed that to a self-directed IRA and then that's what I invested like my first, you know, 50K into my first passive investment, you know, it was 120 doors and, and about as much as I know about it, Bernard, so you're going to share some good lie here about as much as I know was I looked at it and my money was not growing at a rate of 16% compounding, which I'm always looking at the rule of 72, the rule of 72, does your money double in six years? without you doing anything, without you feeding it or whatever. And so I looked at my, my, my 401k, I go, man, that thing has not doubled without me feeding it. Even with me feeding it, I don't know if we've really doubled. So I look at the math and, and anyways, I go, well, that's, I'm going to put it in something that does. And that's why I invested in our first, you know, multifamily deal. 
But then all these terms come into play, UBIT taxes, someone asked me and I go, well, I don't know. It's a unrelated business or something other tax. And then they asked me, well, how much is that? How much is it going to be? And I, I go, I don't know. It didn't, to me, it was like, it didn't matter because I knew no matter what tax they put on it, I was still going to be making more with commercial. I didn't want that to slow my mindset down. It would have been a much better approach though, had I had an expert like you kind of explaining it. So that's what I know. I would love for you to share some light with our listeners because we have a lot of passive investors and people kind of in this world that are trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah. And so that, that's awesome question. And the UBIT and UDFI stuff is getting a lot of attention these days. And here's the thing that I learned in the self-directed space. Mm-hmm. Even in the self-directed space, you can't get a truly naked retirement account, truly naked provider, mm. which is what you want. You want somebody that has no, that's kind of given you starting from the ground up and tailoring the clothes to you, not giving you too many layers that you don't need, but giving you exactly what you do need and a way that it's tailored to you. Like so this clothing metaphor is actually pretty cool, right? So you can end up with something that doesn't fit you. You don't want that. Or you can end up with too many layers or too few layers. So here's the deal. You are spot on in the sense that for those that know they want to do commercial real estate with their retirement accounts, the tax is just not a factor in determining and selecting to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a secondary question, which is, all right, what's the best way to mm-hmm. set it up? Yep. And many people are getting scared away from like, no, I'm not using retirement accounts because I heard about this UDFI thing. Yes. Mistake, because uh, you're still going to do much better. Mm-hmm. And if you don't think you're going to do much better in real estate, then just don't do real estate, right? Yeah. So it, you obviously, you have come to the recognition that the real estate deals are a better fit for you. That tax factor mm-hmm. is not a decisive. It is not a determining factor at all in pulling the trigger on using retirement accounts. Mm-hmm. That being said, there are different ways to mitigate and navigate the tax and to know what's the smartest way to set things up. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I heard. So through this process, you know, I did that once I did it twice. My wife did it a third time. And this was, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And now that I'm in the world, I start to learn more and someone goes, Hey, did you know you can avoid UBIT taxes altogether by doing a, you know, whatever the term was, it was a self, a QRP and a solo 401k and and so we, me and Bernard were talking earlier, I go, I have a solo 401k. I haven't really exercised. I haven't used it, you know, but I'm like, I set one up. I, I guess I have it. So anyways, yes, I would love you to shed some light on different, you know, different approaches, different ways, the best ways to do this now that, now that we have a little more education about us. So thank you. Yeah, let's do it. And, and the best way is going to vary from individual to individual, right? So just like the stock market, we're saying, hey, these folks that are kind of selling the same thing to everybody are not doing anybody justice. When you get a retirement account, it also has got to be tailored to you. So there are, there is a neat carve out. You know, even before we talk about the carve out, let's talk about UDFI overall and the mistakes that people are making. Okay. Uh, so some people are being scared into cashing out their retirement accounts, right? So they're taking a taxable distribution, paying taxes plus penalties um, and investing in their own name usually a mistake. I'm not going to say, never say never, usually a mistake because 
Firstly, the UBIT tax, as we'll discuss, is not nearly as bad as people think it is. The bite that it takes out of your returns is not nearly what you think it would be. And when you, after you pay income tax and 10% penalty, you're left with so much less powder to invest. You know, so you're getting into smaller deals. And over time, you realize you start with less. It's a lot about the accumulation, the compounding over time. So if you're going to lose half your money by doing a taxable withdrawal, the cost of that over time is going to be huge. It's just the compounding yeah. is very hard to measure. Uh, and some of these people will think also, oh, I want to get the depreciation benefits. I don't get the personal tax benefits if I do it inside my retirement account. Yeah. Now, that's a factor, but for a lot of people, a lot of investors, it's not really a factor because the real estate losses, you know, it depends. To what extent are you going to get to lose them, to use them, to utilize them? Because some investors are subject to the passive activity loss limitations, and some aren't. Are you familiar with that? I am. So uh, maybe this is a good one to explain to, to even the passive investors, or let me try, in my simple mind, explain where we're at. So should I pull money out of my 401k? Should I pull money out of my self-directed IRAs and get taxed and invest it in cash in a deal? And you know, generally speaking, Bernard says, no, it's better to keep it in there. But some people go, what about the losses when we do, when we buy the property, we want accelerated depreciation on the property. We would do a cost segregation study. They pull it all together. They accelerate the depreciation. My example, I put in 100K cash one year, Bernard, and I got to write off like 69 grand in losses. <laughs> so if I'm an investor cash, I'm like, hey, I want that. However, the next thing that Bernard mentioned is, man, if you're not a real estate professional, you may not have the same tax advantages as somebody who's not. The material participation may not allow you to qualify some of the active or passive losses. So Hopefully that's summed up a little bit of what you said. Keep going though, man. Keep awesome. going though. Cause this yeah, is good. You, you put, there's a so much that has to be unpacked there. So I'm going to try to distill it to a nutshell. This Real is estate good. is tax efficient, whether you're a passive active investor, whether you're a real estate professional or not a real estate professional, it is tax efficient. However, if you are not materially participating in the deal, or you are not a real estate professional, the losses are going to end up being suspended passive losses. So you're going to accumulate losses and carry them forward. It's very likely you're not going to have benefits from the losses. Mm -hmm. So for somebody like that, sometimes people say, oh, I cashed out my retirement account. I took the 50% oh. hit haircut. Oh, man. Um, and now I have 50% less to invest and you're not even getting the envision tax benefits. So really, it's better for the syndicator and the investor to keep the money in the retirement account because you need more money for the deal to raise for the deal as a syndicator, right? You need a bigger raise. You, need, you don't want the IRS to take 50% of the money. And the investor is going to do better over time the more money they have in the deals. And so if you take a 50% haircut up front, that's going to be a huge hit. So the yeah. only time... I can see that taking a distribution from the retirement account makes sense is if we've got somebody that say decided I've got enough of my nine to five and quitting cold turkey, <laughs> cold turkey. Starting tomorrow, I am full-time real estate. I am going to qualify real estate professional for tax status, and I am going to be doing my own deals, materially participating 
right? Then maybe it makes sense (laughs) to pull the money out of the retirement account, take the hit because you need the money to start your enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just Mm -hmm. the return on the investment. It's not just the ROI. You're starting a business and the ROI on that can be thousands of percentage points, right? Because you're launching an enterprise. But if somebody is not doing that, they're going to be passively investing, keep your money in the retirement account. In 99 out of 100 scenarios, you're going to come out way ahead doing that. Sound right? That sounds great. Yeah, you've described me to a T so far. (laughs) (laughs) But this is really good because, you know, before I went to become an active investor, so, you know, maybe two, two mindsets listening right now. One of them is you're a W 2, you're, you know, high performing, you're a professional, you make a lot of money, you know, you're making a couple hundred grand a year. You're not going to leave your profession. I just want to stick my money somewhere that it's going to work. Passive all the way. Go your 401k, you know, move that stuff over if you have the ability to keep it in those retirement plans. And then you don't have to take the, the haircut like Bernard's saying. And you can earn, you know, earn while you're learning and you can do it 100% passively. So this is a great way to tap it. That's what I did my first three deals like we're talking about. And that's like 400 doors. So when I, I tell people I'm an active investor today and now 500 doors, we closed on another property and we have another one in our contracts. I'm like, okay, we're about to be at 600, but actually I'm at like 900, a thousand doors because I'm a passive investor in 400. Now that I'm raising capital from other investors, it's easy for me to explain some of these things and how we did it because like I did it myself. So if you're a passive investor, listen, you know, rewind some of that stuff. If you're an active investor, you're like, man, I got to tap some of this to get to go active. Well, there's a good exception to that rule. But yeah, for the most part, like you said, generally speaking, keep it there, keep it moving. Let's go, you know, avoid capital gains taxes when we sell, right? Because the cash investor has to pay those too. No, okay. So anyways, this is great. This is great, Bernard. Hello, hello. This is Abel Pacheco, your host for the Five Talents Podcast. After listening to a few episodes, deep down, do you know that multifamily and commercial real estate investing is one of the best ways to create financial freedom? If you said yes to that question and you are where I was a few years ago, then I'd absolutely love to connect with you. A few years ago, I started personally consuming a ton of real estate education. I traveled all over the country, as many real estate conferences and seminars that I could go to. I took 200 plus hours of real estate education. I spent thousands of dollars along the way. And I did this because I knew the path to financial freedom for me and my family was through commercial real estate and syndication. So if you've made a similar decision, I'd love to connect with you. And potentially in the future, I'd love to partner with you as well. Take a moment, go to 5tcre.com forward slash invest and I'd love to set up a time to talk. So now let's go back. What are the what other the hell, yeah, that are What else do we need to know? Man? Right. Keep, so the other going. mistake that's made is there are three mistakes that this UBIT leads to. So one is people will cash out their retirement account and we'll see that's usually that's a mistake as we described because they're not going to get, they're going to come out way behind. That's going to come even to sharper contrasts once we describe how UBIT actually works. Second mistake, which maybe we have addressed already, is people say, no, I'm not cashing out. I don't want to take the hit, but I'm not investing in real estate. Mistake. Again, real estate, it's going to do you, if you that IRR is there, yeah. 
the UBIT is not the deterrent. It's just not a factor in are, deciding. What are we not. talking about? Is it like a percentage point, two points, three points? What, okay, what let's put that in perspective. And I want us to talk about the third error. Okay, okay. Um, uh, and the third mistake go. is that people will do. So we set up every type of retirement accounts. Now, qualified retirement plans have a carve out for the type of UBIT that you'll encounter in real estate. Okay. So, but qualified retirement plans are not a fit for everybody. But that's another mistake that people are making is going to set up a qualified retirement plan when it's not, it's not a fit for them. So, and the cost, the potential tax liability on that is huge. Again, nothing compared to the UBIT, nothing compared to that tax. So that's why I keep coming back to you want, you want naked and then clothe, tailor the clothing for you. And in the space, so self-directed IRA providers, tend not to talk about UBIT and UDFI. And it's buried there in the fine print. So if anybody ever asks, they've done their CYA. And like, don't you see there on page 27 of the agreement that you signed up in the fine print, get out your magnifying glass. It says there that you acknowledge, warrant, represent that you are aware of and responsible for all UBIT, UDFI, and UBTI, right? That's how they handle it. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, the folks that are focused on promoting QRPs, right? So they put UBIT and UDFI front and center, and that drives people to go into QRPs that are not tailored to them. And again, it's not necessarily a good fit. So let's talk about what qualified retirement plans are because people get a lot of confusion about this. And we'll talk about how the UDFI actually works. You're still describing me to a T man. Cause I'm like, yep, I set up the QRP. I don't know what it is or how it works, but I set it up. <laughs> there's my, uh, but anyways, keep going, brother. So there's like this mystique and vagueness and qualified retirement plans. You know exactly what it is. You know exactly what it is. And kind of once you pull away the emperor's clothes, Mm-hmm. Again, back to our clothes metaphors, you'll maybe be a little surprised or disappointed. So qualified retirement plans is just a group of retirement accounts. So calling something a QRP is a deliberate attempt not to describe it. Yeah. Because a qualified retirement plans is just a group of plans. And the most well-known of them are 401k plans, mm-hmm. right? And so every 401k plan is a qualified retirement plan. People have heard of profit sharing plans. Those are qualified retirement plans. Some people may be familiar with kind of the older style pension plans, like a defined benefit plan Mm -hmm. and cash balance plans. Those are all qualified retirement plans. Now, there's a lot of compliance complexity associated with those. And so anytime somebody tells me, Bernard, I've got a QRP and I ask them, what do you have? Like, I don't know. I'm like, man, if you don't know what it is, you don't have a prayer of operating it compliantly. Mm-hmm. So here's the deal. Qualified retirement plans, that broad category of plans has a carve out for real estate acquisition indebtedness UDFI. So all these accounts are subject to UBIT. Sometimes people tell me, Bernard, QRP doesn't have UBIT. John Doe told me no UBIT. Wrong. They all have UBIT, but they do have the carve-out. Qualified retirement plans have an awesome carve-out that's hugely impactful for real estate. So this, the type of UBIT that we're talking about in real estate generally is a type of UBIT that you get because you used leverage. And, and we'll get into the how the tax actually operates here. 
So the way what happens is whether you are an IRA, whether you're a qualified retirement plan, or whether you are the Red Cross or United Way, these are all tax sheltered, you know, kind of entities that don't pay taxes, charitable entities, certain taxes that you get, because way back in the 50s and 60s, there were some abuses. So Congress introduced these UBIT rules. And one of those is if you use borrowed money to create profit, investment profit, a portion of the return can be taxable, right? So let's say an IRA or United Way, and let's take the syndication part out of it. Let's just Mm -hmm. say I've got a choice. I've got an IRA. I can buy a single family or a duplex, a triplex, a quad. I can, and so there are two available. Let's say there's a single family for 100,000 and there's a quad for 400K. My IRA has 100K in it. Mm-hmm. I can buy the single family for 100K all cash deal, or I can get a lender to give me another 300K and I can buy the quad. Now, the thing is, if you use the debt, you're going to have UDFI, right? That's going to be a key thing. If you borrow the money from the lender, your IRA borrows money you're going to have UDFI. So should you buy the quad with the 400K or the single all cash? And before we get into the deep dive, it's helpful. Abel, what do you say? I like the one with all leverage. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. As much leverage as possible is that kind of how my head goes to. Awesome. And that's almost definitively, that's definitively the right answer. (laughs) Okay, good. Here's the deal. The UDFI tax is there to tax the return on the leveraged portion. Mm-hmm. So your 100K, so to speak, the IRA's equity in the deal, that stays tax-free no matter what, mm-hmm. right? So like if you were to say, all right, the moment you borrow a dollar, all of a sudden everything becomes taxable, mm-hmm. right? Then maybe you're better with the all-cash deal, right? That's where, so even me, I'm like, I know I use leverage. I want to use leverage. But but the moment I hear, oh, you're going to get taxed on this thing, I like, I go, oh, I, you know, I could almost <laughs> say I should buy the all cash deal. And then my head goes, no, 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 leverage, leverage. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah, it's, the it's, moment it's, taxes come out, like, I'm like, oh, I'm fearful. I'm worried. You know, anyways, go ahead. And that's, I, I think this is great to illustrate how people have to approach things. Yeah. We got to engage both our gut and our brains. Mm-hmm. And we got to you know where each one has its place. So that kind of reaction to the tax, that's a gut reaction, mm-hmm. but you're able to engage your brain, your cognitive abilities and say, no, right? Yeah. And yeah. like, here, it makes sense. Just, you know, in this case, we got to override the gut, right? This was, that was good. That was a good illustration. That, you know, that was exactly my mindset to self-directed IRA. When someone told me you bit and then- you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that have such a hard time taking action and moving forward. I talked to countless investors and people that want to learn, they want to get education. They, you know, we'll set up multiple calls, talk 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And, and then I'm like, well, do you want to move forward? Or, you know, what's going on? And like, it's hard for them to overcome that. And for me, that's where UBIT kind of came in. And then I go, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this because they tell me that I'm going to be taxed. And you know, your logic has to go, you know, man, my money still hasn't doubled in six years. Who cares about, I don't even, I don't even know the number. Let's just move forward. 
You got to yeah, be able to. Yeah, and but it, it's it's even more than that because there, it's possible that if all of the profits became taxable, that it would be an an impediment. You know, you would take a step yeah. back. Even your brain maybe should say maybe not. Let's run the numbers through a spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. But if what your equity portion remains tax free. Mm. Right. So, yeah, right. so would anybody say, you know, what? I'm not taking a loan from the bank because you know what happens? You got to take a loan for the bank. You got to pay interest. Yeah. I'm not paying no interest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But of course, that is just the cost of OPM and yeah. it makes sense. So mm-hmm. the tax on the leverage portion is best viewed as a, some little another oh. basis point. Another if somebody the bank said, hey, we'll charge you another BIP. Or two mm-hmm. bips. Mm-hmm. Would you take the? You would do it. You would do it, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, forward. you gotta analyze it, but in most cases, <laughs> yeah. you do You're it. Still moving forward. Yeah. And here's the thing. Here's why the tax though is different than the bank. Here's a, here. Here's why on the on the bank, uh, if they add one percent, you had to rethink it because you pay the one percent no matter how the deal performs, right? So you got to think about your upside and your downside, right? So anytime you're paying more interest. You got to think about what's the impact going to be on the cash flow. What's my downside risk? And right, of course, if the deal does what we envision it to do, we'll pay another five percent. Right, we're expecting yeah. a twenty percent return. Yeah, it's worth it. But of course, as as the investor and the lead, you know that we don't have a crystal ball, and mm-hmm. we got to have downside protection. And when you think mm-hmm. about the downside, you got to think about what's it going to cost me if we got to. It takes a little longer to stabilize this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing with the tax, right? You only pay the, you only have the tax when you actually have the profit, right? So here's what happens. Here's how UDFI actually works, and you're gonna love this. So you get into a deal, and let's you go back to our, let's leave the syndication aside for a moment, right? We got our investor looking at the single family or the quad. Mm-hmm. So he goes into the quad. He's gonna get a four hundred thousand dollar deal, seventy five percent leverage. Mm-hmm. Now, if the deal doesn't go as they planned, are they going to pay UDFI? No UDFI. We've got to pay the bank, but there's no UDFI because UDFI is based on net taxable income. Mm-hmm. And you know what else happens in real estate? How often do you get net taxable income? I'm waiting for your answer. Okay, but you know the answer <laughs> in real estate. Right, you don't generally in the first couple of years you'd be cash flowing, but your net taxable income is zero. Right, yeah. you're gonna have that loss if you can utilize it. So when you have what the UDFI tax tax says is all right, seventy five percent of this return is gonna be taxable, right? But when you do your taxes, your t- when you do your tax calculations, you're gonna say depreciation, interest expense. Oh, no income. <laughs> yeah. We're writing off as much as freaking possible in the first really five years bonus depreciation year one. It's on paper, it's a big massive loss, <laughs> really, for exactly all of us, you know, and so we're guess. leveraging that as crazy as we can, as much as we can. And so the UDFI ends up being like this mythical creature that you don't really see for the first five years of a deal. Okay. You know, it all kind of clicks. Yeah, because who cares? We're not paying any freaking taxes on it. We have losses. So it's, we are leveraging, we are borrowing, 
but there's no really taxable income or net taxable income in the very beginning. So the taxes never really get hit for the majority of those investors. Exactly. Let's play it out. Let's play it out further. (laughs) You've just like demystified all this stuff for me. Anyways, thank you very much. It's like, oh, yeah. Okay. We were right. There's forget UDFI and UBIT. Is you, well, oh yeah. Keep going. Let me keep going. Yeah, keep I going. know. I and it's so question. true. It's hard to get accurate info about this yes. because the SDIRA people kind of try to slip it under the rug, yeah. sweep it under the rug. I don't necessarily judge them for that. One is they don't want people to have that gut reaction yeah, and run away. Yeah. But of course it wouldn't, that would hit affect their revenue if people are scared of UDFI. So they kind of don't really emphasize it too much. Yeah. And then what the opposite end, we got the QRP people and the other that camp. are putting yeah. the UDFI thing and UBIT thing front and center and exaggerating its impact to drive people to do QRPs, mm-hmm. which is going to be a mistake as we'll get to. But yes. now once we have it's once we have this UDFI thing in perspective, though, we see that it's not nearly as onerous as anybody would think. Yes. And is uh, the same mindset is UBIT. Does it fall in that same UDFI category? Like that's why I just never mess with it a lot. Cause it, is it the same? It works the same so way. So here's the deal. There are different acronyms being tossed around. Okay. UDFI is there's UDFI and UBTI stand for unrelated debt financed income. Okay. And unrelated taxable business income, right? UBTI, unrelated business taxable income. So those are the kinds of incomes that can be subject to the tax. UBIT is like this umbrella. That's the actual tax. So there is another type of, there's UDFI and UBTI. So UBTI is a type of taxable income when you have an active business. So say you were doing real estate development Mm -hmm. uh, and you were developing, subdividing, and selling. Mm-hmm. So you weren't in the rental income business. You were in the development business. So development is taxed very differently than multifamily rentals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so development is treated like an active business. So when you, if you have development activity inside of QRP or IRA, no matter. I know every people will tell me, Bernard, John Doe told me no UBIT in a QRP. But it's not true. So there's the exception is for debt on real estate. But if you're doing an active trader business, like real estate development, you get hit with UBIT tax, whether you're doing a QRP or SDIRA. And in that case, all the income is taxed, everything, because that's got nothing to do with the debt. It's just this kind of business activity is an active business and it's all taxable inside of a retirement account. But in the space that we're playing in, which is the multifamily rental space, that's rental income. The tax is only based on the UDFI to the extent that there is leverage. Make sense? Got it. Yes. Demystified a bunch of this stuff. Here's the deal. Once we take this a little further, let's play it out a little bit. So if you're, you can take the four, the fourplex or the single family, go with the fourplex, Mm -hmm. the 75% First couple of years, all likelihood, no taxable income. Say this is just a killer deal. After bonus depreciation, after all these sweet tax benefits, you still have taxable income, right? Or maybe now you're seven, eight years into the deal. Okay. Right? Yep. 
but the portion of the of the you're only taxed on the portion that's leveraged. Now, if you have no income, net taxable income, there's no tax. So it's not mm-hmm. like the bank where you pay no matter what. And if you are if you are generating net taxable income, well, that's awesome. That is the cost of OPM. What I try to tell people is like, I'd like you to try this um, with Charles Schwab. How about telling them, hey, I've got $100,000 of mutual funds. How about giving me another 300K? Not happening. Not going to happen. And if Charles Schwab or somebody does it, right, you'll have UDFI, right? <laughs> That's what yeah. you'll have. So yeah. hedge funds, for example, that use leverage create UDFI to self-directed IRAs and QRPs because this leverage exception is unique to real estate. So if you use leverage in a QRP for anything other than real estate, you get hit with the UDFI. Mm-hmm. So it definitely can be very attractive to use a qualified retirement plan for real estate, but you got to know if it's a fit for you. And if it is a fit for you, understand the compliance work that this entails. So Abel, if I were to ask you today, and then I'm going to say if had I asked you a year ago, Mm -hmm. are QRP and solo 401k the same, different? What would you say? I would say a solo 401k is a type of a QRP (laughs) and it really just has clothes on it. (laughs) And there's the difference. It's bundled together with probably some stuff I don't need. Something along those lines. Okay. It's, it's hard to unravel this, but we'll do our best. Okay. So versus back then too, I'm like, I didn't even know there was a QRP or solo 401k. So that's how, how much I knew a couple of years ago. So this is a solo 401k is not a really a technical term. So here's the deal. When you use qualified retirement plans, qualified retirement plans are subject to two areas of law. Title 26 of US code, that's tax code, right? And title 29, which is labor law. Mm-hmm. Now, labor law and taxes are probably the two most complex areas of law. Now, a qualified retirement plan can be sub is subject to both of those. But here's the deal. If the plan is not required to cover anybody other than the business owners and their spouses, most of that labor law complexity goes away. And that's what when you refer to solo 401k, mm-hmm. we're referring to the type of company that can create a 401k that doesn't have to include anybody other than business owners and their spouses. Mm-hmm. And that's no, no full-time employees and stuff like that. It's just me, my wife, us in a corporation that we've created, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. Now there's more, we, there's a lot of potential pitfalls to trip people sure. up. So maybe we'll go down that, that rabbit hole, but here's the deal. So when somebody has, it doesn't really matter the people that are out there to say we're doing solo 401k, QRP, this, that, or the other, mm-hmm. right? They're just giving people a set of documents. Now, the documents can say on it whatever you'd like, whatever they write on it. It's all kind of meaningless. What dictates is reality. So if somebody is not a fit for a qualified retirement plan, because a qualified retirement plan by definition is a trust set up for employees or self-employed individuals. So if you don't fit in that category, I don't care what it says on your piece of paper, it's not a qualified retirement plan because the definition of qualified retirement plan 
is a trust set up for the benefit of employees or self-employed individuals. So we've got all these folks out there that say, I've got a QRP, but they've got nothing that remotely resembles a business. They don't have a QRP. They've got mm. a non-QRP. Mm, okay. <laughs> Illuminating this stuff for us, Mr. Bernard. Uh, now, then the other side is if people, if somebody say has a document on it that says solo 401k, but they do have, and they've got a business, but they do have employees somewhere, or maybe they've got a spouse may have a business that has employees or some other family member, or maybe they've got multiple businesses or affiliated businesses, and they've got employees in one of those, right? They're very set of complex rules, right? So very often people say, Bernard, can I just, listen, I've got employees, but I don't want to give them this stuff. So I just want to set up a solo plan for myself. I'm going to create a little consulting company and my business is going to pay me consulting fees. And that's going to be my solo business. Tax code says, no, we're going to look at all controlled groups and affiliated services groups. And we're going to say, no, they've all get bundled and lumped together. So even if you got a document or somebody says, hey, you've got a solo 401k plan. If you have anything anywhere that the IRS would say or labor law would say, no, those guys are part of this business and the IRS takes a broad and expansive view of what is included in your business. Mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm. a solo plan. You've got all the complexity yeah. of a full-blown ERISA plan. So the paperwork, everybody out there is kind of pushing paperwork and people are like, I've got Bernard, people saying, Bernard, I've got this plan. I've got that plan. And I've got to tell people sometimes, the, what you have is based on how the IRS and Department of Labor would view your reality. Mm-hmm. What it says on the piece of paper is kind of meaningless. And I want to strip away a little bit of mystique from this industry. Very few. There's a big, right? The retirement plan space is, is huge, particularly the qualified retirement plan space. And the type of companies that dominate the space are called TPAs third-party administrators, Mm -hmm, and they're mm -hmm. there to help businesses deal with the complexities that come with having a qualified retirement plan and having employees. It is a world of complexity. Now, nobody in this space, more or less, there are just a handful of companies that actually draft the plan documents. TPAs that may have thousands of companies that they're servicing, They may have millions of employees that they're servicing as a TPA. They don't write their own plan documents. There's no need for that. Writing the plan documents, there are a few specialized companies in the United States, not that many. They write the documents that everybody uses. So there's kind of prepackaging, bundling some stuff up. That's why you said, hey, bundle. You know, they're following these guidelines and then there's stamping their thing on it and using it as a product. Exactly. So come people out there are saying, all right, get this, get that. It's not proprietary. Everybody in the space, more or less, every TPA, every plan provider is going to one of a small group of companies mm-hmm. to get their plan documents. Mm-hmm. Now, the plan document is not the magic sauce. What you really need is to help figure out what's the best way to work. What's the best plan for me? It's got to be tailored. And we changed the way we operate. It used to be that we would operate before people signed on to work with us. 
they would kind of determine, are they going to do an SDIRA route? And in that space, our focus, you know, most of our clients have checkbook control, mm-hmm. but we don't require it. We'll tell our clients the pros and cons, but we used to have people kind of, they knew beforehand, these are like the four options. And then we were spending a lot of time talking to people ahead of time, like hours educating. And we say it like it is, and it's not a sales pitch. So salespeople mm-hmm. have all the time in the world to talk. But when you have, when it's not part of sales and like, we really want to give our clients yeah. unlimited attention. So we, we changed the way we operate right now. People sign up with us. They don't have to commit. You're not signing up for an SDIRA. You're not signing up for a QRP. You're not signing up for a Wyoming LLC or a Texas or a Missouri. You sign up, we're going to take it from there and we're going to help you navigate all of this. Yeah. Um, rather than like, oh, oh, you're signing up for this piece of paper. Oh, sure. You act, most of the way the space operates is, all right, you asked for it. You got it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 That makes sense. <laughs> That's exactly what I've done. You know, for the most part, I was like, babe, this is what I heard was good. You sign me up for one of those. So Bernard, it's been an amazing show. And I think our listeners probably have more questions because everybody's situation is very different. Mine from theirs, from everyone else's. Where's the best place we can reach out to you, our listeners, our guests, our network, if they want to learn a little bit more about their specific, you know, the best plan for them, the best suit, <laughs> the tailored yes. suit in this analogy? It's so there are a couple of ways you can just Google Reshare Financial, find lots of stuff, and reshurefinancial.com. Spell uh, that for can, us. That's R E S U R E, Reshare financial.com. No spaces, no dashes, reshorefinancial.com or 401kcheckbook.com. Nice. Okay. Very good. And you have some resources, I'm sure in a couple of different spots where I can go find all this stuff there. <laughs> so a lot of this stuff, we, it's it kind of in line with what we did. We kind of tried to simplify. It. So we do have a page that you can still navigate to that has about 50 or 60 podcast recordings. Hey, you want to dig in. There you go. Uh, and, a lot of it is self-directed retirement me. accounts, but also 1031 exchange, life insurance, real estate professional, estate planning. Because we know what happens a lot. A lot of them even have the title, take control of your retirement accounts, but the actual content may be different because when we booked it, people reached out to Bernard, we want you on the show to talk about self-directed retirement accounts. And then we ended up talking about all sorts of tax stuff. Uh, We got a bunch of webinars that are accessible. Um, There are a couple that are actually pretty timely. The um, tax changes under Biden. So really deep dive uh, webinar. Three, actually we did four. There are three that are up there. Just if any, I don't know this is going live. If it goes live today, the law firm that we did it in conjunction with, they're moving their YouTube page. So right now it's not accessible, but it should be back up soon. This will show up in about a month. So. Oh, okay. By then they should be should be up and going. Okay, great. And then is there anything today that we didn't touch on that you wanted to touch on? Anything else that we just didn't cover? I didn't get I didn't chance to talk about or it's interesting because we help clients with a lot of stuff. And sometimes they call and they're like, so we're talking about estate planning, tax planning, tax strategy, and what it gets to be a lot of moving parts. And what I say is like, hey, let's start with one thing and kind of take it from there. So 
we do entity structuring and planning. We're active in all 51 U.S. domiciles. But a good place to start where we have something that is just totally unique in the market is the retirement accounts. Got it. All right. Well, Bernard, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it, man. This is like illuminating was kind of the word and demystifying and then encouraging that I just kind of followed the mindset. I'm like, ah, I don't care. Let's move forward. Uh, very encouraging to hear my experts say, yep, that was the right thing to do. So anyways, this is awesome. Thank you very much. Again, my name is Abel Pacheco. I'm the host for the Five Towns podcast. If you heard something you like, what I would love for you to leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe to the show, reach out to Bernard. He'd love to talk to you. He'd love to kind of help you in the right direction, whatever your, your needs are. And then uh, we, look, we look forward to having you on the next show. Bernard, thanks for your time, brother. Abel, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this and it was an awesome episode. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Five Talents Podcast. I'm your host, Abel Pacheco. Each week, we're going to bring you interviews from other industry experts and commercial real estate investors who followed their dreams and achieved massive success. If you enjoyed this episode, then you're going to want a copy of our Passive Investor's Guide, Tackling Commercial Real Estate the Easy Way. It's the guide we use to invest in $93 million of commercial real estate. It's a 65-page ebook. It's a great resource to learn the basic mechanics of multifamily syndications. And we're going to show you how to evaluate your next passive investment opportunity. So if you subscribe to our podcast now, leave us a review and a rating. I'm going to give you a free copy. So take a moment to do that now. We'd appreciate it. And then you can register for the book at 5tcre.com forward slash ebook, 5tcre.com forward slash ebook. Let us know and we're going to send you a copy. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Five Talents Podcast.